You're listening to Imperium Cast 2. This week, Throne and Altar. Uh, we'll be discussing the role of faith, uh, theology, religion, and uh, you know, and its implication in the justification and constitution of political authority. Um, but first, before we kind of get into the topic for this week, um, I want to kind of cover some housekeeping, you know, this being a new podcast. So I implore you, um, if you aren't already aware, go visit imperiumpress.org forward slash imperiumcast. And you can listen to this podcast there. And also there's a download link. So you can hit the download button and you can download the podcast. It might be more convenient to you that way to have this easy um, kind of download capacity. Um, so you'll find it there. And also you'll be able to see Mike's website and go and buy some lovely books. Uh, there's a new release out, which uh, I invite Mike to kind of discuss uh, after I finish with this. But also before I throw it to Mike, I also want to say you can go find us now on Google Podcasts. You can find us on Spotify, on SoundCloud. Not only do I have a YouTube channel, but I also have an Odyssey channel. And I do really encourage you guys to go and subscribe and watch uh, and watch us on Odyssey because Odyssey is just simply better than YouTube. Um, also, Audible, uh, if you're in the UK or North America, I think um, has our podcast, Player.fm, and a few other podcast apps. So, you know, there's lots of different options for you guys to listen to us. Um, and if you are listening to us somewhere other than YouTube, uh, do check out my YouTube. Uh, YouTube is Joel Davis, one word, for extra content. I don't just do this. Um, I'm also, I also do all other kinds of uh, content. Recently, we just started a series on Schumpeter's, like a reading group series on Schumpeter's Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy, which is a compelling book, uh, which we'll probably be, uh, we will discuss at, in some future date on this podcast for sure. Um, so I implore you to go check that out. Um, and also join the Imperium Cast Discord. There'll be invite links posted all over the different places you can find us. Um, particularly if you want to get in contact with Mike and I or participate in the community at all. Um, and also, I also encourage you to follow Imperium Press on Telegram. Mike's been doing these short audio pieces. I think he's been calling it mini mini iCast or mini Imperium Casts. Uh, I listened to a few of them. They're quite good. So, um, yeah, if you're kind of hungry for content, uh, there are other places you can find us. So we're on Twitter and all other kinds of places. So, yeah, find us on all the different social medias. All the links will be in the descriptions and so forth for you to kind of go down that rabbit hole. But um, with that, Mike, and maybe tell us about the new book out and um, maybe just kind of jump straight into the topic after that. Thanks, Joel. Yeah. Um, so the new book, uh, for anyone who's listening at a later date, uh, is Carlyle's uh, the present time is the the title that we've given it. Actually, what it is is it's three separate essays by Carlyle, Thomas Carlyle, that is, um, very well known Victorian social critic and um, favorite of Moldbug and just excellent, excellent like writer and English stylist, like one of the truly great, great writers in the English language. And so these three essays, one of them is from Latter-day Pamphlets. That's the one called The Present Time. This is a crit critique of democracy and uh, popular sovereignty, which is something that we will touch on today as well in this uh, Imperium cast in general. Um, it is really like when you read this essay at the end of it, it's just such a rhetorical and like uh, analytical powerhouse that like there's there's really not much left 
when he gets done with popular sovereignty. Um, he has a wonderful analogy about like the ship rounding Cape Horn and basically talking a little bit about natural law, or he doesn't call it that, but that's basically what he's talking about is like conforming to something outside of, um, you know, the desire to have, have to vote on everything. So that's one of the essays. The other essay in it is The Modern Worker, which is basically a critique of laissez-faire. And uh, again, this is like, yeah, it's from his book, Past and Present, one of the essays in that excellent uh, piece. Uh, you can tell that uh, some of the socialists were were uh, taking notes while he was uh, writing because a lot of it sort of uh, predates and uh prefigures some of the socialist critiques it's interesting because carlisle is an influence on both socialism and fascism so uh very good uh, essay and it's good counterbalance because um with popular sovereignty critiquing that he uh you know you can get into some territory where it sounds like you're just kind of like hacking on normal people which he doesn't but this is a way uh this is He's sort of like empowering the worker and basically saying that he's uh, he he deserves better. And the third essay is called Shooting Niagara, which is probably his spiciest essay. Basically, what he says here, he's defending the um, uh, the actions of the British Parliament in clamping down violently on um, an insurrection in one of the colonies, and the the this Parliament sort of second guessed themselves and like later try to kind of cucked a little bit on it and like wanted to like walk it back and like you know was doing a little bit of self-flagellation carlisle just kind of agrees and amplifies he's just like no you did the right thing and uh, to be honest we need we need that here actually here in england you need you need, we need martial law in england he goes into like a great uh, exposition on how martial law is the only law uh, so anyway this book is excellent uh, very highly recommended um, we've got it on uh, the imperiumpress.org website, so uh, you can go check that out. So, yeah, but today the topic that we're going to talk a little bit about here uh, is obviously throne and altar. So, um, these being sort of the preconditions uh, required for any legitimacy of, in the, of the sovereign. Um, and we've, uh, Joel and I have both read two texts that. Uh, sort of frame this a bit and they're they're two of the all-time greats and uh we're going to be releasing this on imperiumpress.org uh, at some stage this year probably about partway through the year both of them one of them is uh robert filmer's patriarcha and the other one is uh joseph de maestra's i think the full title of it is on the generative principle of political constitutions um that's it's uh, general principles of a bit of a short essay, so that's going to be folded into uh, a piece with like a few of other essays in the Imperium Press volume. But basically, what these um, what these two texts are doing here is sort of um, well, Filmer on the one hand is basically critiquing again popular sovereignty, uh, but he's doing it in a very interesting way. What he does is he basically takes the state. And he uses as the model for the state the family, and uh, because you know obviously with uh, under liberalism and democracy, um, you get these consensual theories of governance, <clears throat> and um, patriarch our filmer comes in with patriarcha and basically says no that's not the way that like you know state authority works uh, it works the same way as a family does. Uh, so a family is not a consensual sort of like, you know, random assemblage of people. 
it's an organic thing that you're thrown into and that you have ties that like predate you or anything else. Uh, so, and it's a continuum that sort of like connects prior generations to the current generation. Um, and he talks at length about what's called patriopotestas, which is the fatherly authority uh, that uh, was enjoyed um, from you know archaic times all the way up until just recently. And he makes this kind of his model and basis for kingship or sovereignty. Uh, so this is a very interesting critique of um, liberalism. And you know, unfortunately, Filmer and Patriarcha get a bit of a you know bad rep like if you if you read the wikipedia article on uh on filmer he's just basically going to be characterized as the guy that Locke btfo'd uh but if you if you actually read Locke and then you read patriarcha with any sort of like you know more than a surface level like superficial reading you'll realize that like Locke didn't even really address much less uh much less rebut filmer it's, there's still a huge amount that we can take from it. So uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about that. The other text is my, uh, Joseph de Maestra's On the Generative Principle. This is a pretty short piece. Patriarch is short too, but this is a short piece where he uh, – um, it's actually a critique of constitutionalism. And what he's doing here is basically explaining that the – as he calls the generative principle, so, so the thing that, uh, you know, generates constitutions – is not what we think it is. You know, uh, he, he'll talk about Thomas Paine saying that um, there isn't a, a constitution isn't real until Thomas Paine can put it into his pocket, which uh, Joseph de Maestra takes big issue with there because for for Maestra, um, what generates political constitutions can't be written in the first place, and uh, the fact that it is written is evidence of weakness. So the political constitution is as strong to the extent that it is unwritten. So this is, and obviously, you know, in the 18th century and on, like with uh, the advent of modern liberalism, you know, people were writing constitutions daily (laughs) and like everybody sort of had his turn at doing it. And what Maestro says is that, no, that's not the way it works. These things are um, built by what he calls the work of circumstances, which is a very historicist sort of uh, concept, and we'll unpack that a little bit. Um, but I think – now, this is not – this, uh, you know, ICAST is not necessarily about constitutionalism. It's about uh, political authority and sovereignty. But I think the reason for this uh, – we read this text is because a lot of the critiques that Meister levels here can be sort of transposed onto uh, authority. So uh, what what is it that generates authority? Where does authority come from? Well, it doesn't come from, you know, deliberation. Uh, it comes from history and the work of circumstances and the divine. Uh, so this is kind of where we're going with these texts. That's a bit of a setup for for them, and and we'll introduce them each sort of in particular. But Joel, did you want to have anything? Did you want to have a little say on that uh, before we go ahead? Yeah, I mean, I I would like to pick up on the question of where authority comes from, uh, because this, I mean, I think in many ways this has been the constitutive notion in a lot of the kind of uh, YouTube and uh, podcast slash writing and theorizing and discussing uh, work that the kind of scene 
around me that I've like kind of we participate in for many years now. It's kind of like what it's focused upon um, ultimately. Uh, that's why we constantly whinge about liberalism because we don't view liberalism as ultimately providing a satisfactory answer to this question. So ultimately, if you can't answer this question, um, you can't really have a coherent political worldview because politics is the question of authority and now, you know, in, in its most fundamental sense. Um, now, you know, De Maestro obviously being a Catholic and Filma being a, a Protestant in their view, authority is ultimately given by God, by divine sanction. Um, and it's kind of, um, it's considered an object of derision in, you know, contemporary discourse, this idea or oh, how ridiculous is that? Like, you know, this, uh, it's so convenient, isn't it? That the, that they claim like the author authority comes from the divine on, you know, because, um, it's just a really convenient justification, um, uh, with, with, you know, according to like modern secular standards, no basis. So like the kind of liberal outgrowth and counterposition um, to this way of thinking was ultimately secularization through kind of denying divine sanction. Therefore, there has to be some other kind of uh, justification that is given completely independently of any kind of theologic, uh, theological uh, concept as to where exactly authority comes from. And so this kind of rebellion against divine authority is kind of intermingled with rebellion against uh, pre-liberal modes of governance. Um, so anyway, so like where I kind of come at this question is I kind of noticed a bunch of kind of circularities in uh, what's possible with this kind of critical rationalist justificationary discourse that liberalism has given us because kind of what comes along with the enlightenment isn't just, you know, a critique of monarchy or a critique of Christianity. Um, but ultimately like just the kind of, uh, critique itself as a, a kind of a justification for itself that like rationality and reason is ultimately its own justification, um, which I find to be paradoxical, um, you know, on whose authority or from you know, who told you that reason is reasonable or on what basis can you claim reason is reasonable except by appealing to reason and entering into a circular uh, kind of uh, seemingly unreasonable um, argument, but it, this is kind of lazy. So like, you know, to go beyond this simple gotcha, um, a circularity that I noticed in trying to deal with the problem of how to think, I spoke last week about rule of law and about how rule of law doesn't make any sense for the simple reason that obviously law can't interpret itself. I mean, clearly someone needs to kind of engage in the act of deciding upon an interpretation for any kind of legal system to like performatively operate in a practical sense. Um, and you can't really govern that interpretation uh, because the very uh, with you know uh, text or with writing because uh, you know a piece of uh, of writing ultimately is the thing that's being interpreted in the first place. And so you're going to enter into this circularity. What's also common in um, you know uh, contemporary theoretical circles, you know after you know the 19th and 20th century of the kind of the left's critique of liberalism where there's this emphasis on sociology, on um, critiquing the liberal subject as being kind of constituted by social and cultural factors outside of itself, along with the kind of critique from the right, which is that no society is fundamentally constituted by hierarchies, um, is that you get another kind of circularity where in the one sense you can say, well, the individual can't really make a decision 
or make an interpretation that isn't contextualized by his culture and his society and a set of ideological presuppositions and the very language that he's using to think through the interpretation is, is kind of dependent on all of his institutions and influences that exist outside of his, you know, personal consciousness, so to speak. And so it's not really his interpretation. He's kind of speaking on behalf of an institution. He's speaking on behalf of the tradition. So the individual dissolves itself into society, but then you can say, well, a society like isn't can't just be like spontaneous. It doesn't just like spontaneously have an, an agency. Society is kind of constructed in its institutional manifestation by a set of participants who form a hierarchy, and that hierarchy ultimately has you know authoritative individuals that act as decision makers and leaders. And so you could say society is reducible to leadership, but then at the same time you get the same problem where well is that leader an individual? In which case isn't he reducible to a society? And you just keep chasing authority around in a circle as to where does authoritative interpretation come from? You, you chase it from the individual into a society, into a hierarchy, back into individuals, back into society, and so forth. And another way of stating this is the idea that sociological models um, cannot you know, describe the act of sociologically modeling itself which, without presupposing themselves. And so like if we create a model for how interpretation works, for how society works, for how authority works, that model can't tell us how authority works without presupposing our authority or the model's authority, in which case we're presupposing the thing we're trying to explain. And so to me, this is like the real paradox of, of kind of critique and of rationality is that this kind of rational mentality of like the enlightenment encourages us to create abstract models as to how things work. We have to model the social system. We have to model um, metaphysics. We have to model knowledge. We have to model all these different processes. And then out of that model, we create some kind of description of how it works. And then we can then derive its functionality through this act of describing it. But the very act of describing it imposes the authority, the authority of whatever presuppositions you take into the act of modeling, like I just described. So again, it's the same circle. Um, and uh, so this kind of relates to uh, you know a, a series of other paradoxes as well. This this idea that causality can't cause itself. If you think of like a first cause, ultimately that first cause can't be caused, and so the principle that all things must be caused uh, kind of breaks down in the very act of trying to substantiate causality itself. Um, you have the problem of infinitesimals, which is, I mean, I'm just kind of restating Kantian ideas here, that ultimately we can't break an object down to its constitutive elements without engaging in an abstract procedure, which could then break those constitutive elements down in kind. Um, so you can never get to the fundamental unit in a model to build something out of without engaging in an act that breaks that unit down. You can't get to the beginning of a model without engaging in an act that undermines it as a beginning. Um, and this is to say, in other words, that critique can only negate, uh, but is unable to affirm. Um, all critique can do is kind of undermine some previous set of conditions that we're presupposing. It can undermine a form of faith, but it can only replace one form of faith with another. And so reason can ultimately is ultimately unable to get behind faith and model faith, um, but is kind of constituted ultimately by faith. And this is kind of, there is no faithless epistemology. There's just the delusion of one. Um, and so this, you know, I, I spent a lot of time 
you know, originally establishing uh, myself uh, online as a kind of promoter of generative anthropology, you know, through, um, you know, working with Trudil Tom back in the days, he used to promote it, you know, guys like Adam Katz, the, uh, the kind of infamous Imperius, um, the so-called neo-absolutist movement. Um, and, uh, you know, these critiques ultimately, I think, can be leveled at GA itself, at generative anthropology itself, which is, you know, GA um, is based on this idea that all language necessarily presupposes the authority of a pre-individual quote-unquote center, in other words, God, which compels us to participate in language because language performatively requires a kind of shared notion of significance that compels us to talk about it. Um, but GA is, a, is an attempt at modeling the conditions prior to the center that give rise to the center and that give rise to language. It's based around a theory of the origin of language, right? Uh, and it, it's kind of like a secularized theology where it's, it kind of replaces theology with uh, anthropology. Um, and this seems to be a paradox because GA cannot model the conditions prior to the generation of this center without presupposing its authority as constitutive of the very language that we are using to model centrality itself. And again, we're in this, this circle where reason tries to get behind faith. It's saying language is predicated upon um, faithful communion with the center, and we're going to try and get behind this faithful communion and model how it occurred. But this, you know, again, we're, we're locked in this circle. Um, and so what kind of I keep coming to in all these different vectors, whether I look at jurisprudence, sociology, generative anthropology, or even like philosophy itself, is this necessity of faith and this untenability of rationality to kind of substantiate itself. Um, another interesting kind of addition to this before I throw it back to Mike is this notion in, in Deleuzian metaphysics. I did a series on my YouTube channel on uh, with some of my friends doing a reading group on Deleuze's difference in repetition. Uh, we also done a few videos on his subsequent work, Logic of Sense. Um, and Deleuze and his theory of time, he makes the case that ultimately Time itself cannot be con constituted by the past uh, because the past has already happened in a certain sense. Um, and so as the past has already happened, um, it, it has no capacity to generate anything new because it, you know, by virtue of it, it's already having happened essentially. So Deleuze substantiates this by saying, if we think about the past, ultimately the only place in which we can encounter it is in the present. Um, uh, because, you know, we can only really encounter it in some kind of imminent memory, but then the present itself, we can never actually experience except in the past, because we can only, by the time we kind of, uh, you know, conceptualize what has happened, it's already happened. If it ha if, if, you know, if in the process of it happening, we haven't had time to think about it. And so if we try to like capture either the past or the present, we kind of chase them back into each other in a kind of circularity. And this is the same circularity as this notion that causality cannot cause itself. If we try to create some model of the past, that model is contingent entirely on what's already happened. And therefore nothing can happen except what's determined by what's already happened. In which case there is no real future. There is no real becoming. There is no possibility for difference or the new or anything to change. It's just, it can just be like a repetition of conditions that already exist. Um, and so Deleuze's idea then is that the future in order for, it must, must be different 
in, in, a, in a kind of absolute sense. Otherwise, it's not the future. Otherwise, if it was the same, then it wouldn't really be the future. It would just be more of the same, more of what's already happened, more of the past. And the future then also must be self-causing because it can't be a product of the past. Otherwise, it wouldn't be different. Um, so it's different and self-causing. At the same time, Deleuze says it must be formless because the process of formation is something that we can only understand as something that's already happened. Um, or we could participate in it maybe in the present as, as the kind of duringness of it happening. Um, but the future, by virtue of it being different and by being self-causing, it must be formless. Uh, but, and it also must be neutral. It, it, it can't already be possess characteristics and structure because the very act of giving it characteristics and structure is the act of making it the past. Um, and then Deleuze says it also must eternally return infinitely because um, otherwise time would stop, being would stop, um, and the fact that it is formless, neutral, self-causing, and different means that there's no capacity for us to limit it according to the past, according to some uh, predetermined structure of limitation. And so, what I kind of discovered, or you know, you know, in this is that you know he's describing the future as pure effect, as its own kind of spontaneous, self-causing, formless, neutral, yet generative, uh, and differentiating. Um, uh, being is that ultimately what he's describing is God. He's describing divinity. And in fact, in logic of sense, when he describes the ion, which is the name that he gives to this, he obviously takes ion as a God of Greek mythology, which he kind of takes to, to name this uh, structure of time. And he then, you know, gives it more uh, characteristics that he gets from theology, like impassibility and so forth. And so it seems very clear that for this whole structure of time to work, there needs to be a divine origin to solve the paradoxes. And so what's interesting is that the, all these paradoxes that I'm encountering, the solution is faith and divinity. And so we kind of get to the end of this critical rationalist project, in my view, Deleuze is the greatest metaphysician in history, at least that I'm aware of. And what, what I find is this kind of rationality paradoxically recursing back upon itself and the only way out of it being a kind of faithful affirmation of the divine. Um, and so this is quite compelling to me. Where does authority come from? It seems like these pre-enlightenment views uh, that authority comes from uh, essentially divine sanction and that our role is to kind of faithfully affirm it, accept it and obey it. Um, uh, this seems to be far more capable of dealing with all these problems and any other kind of liberal system, any other kind of system ba based out of like some kind of critical rationalism. Um, so anyway, with that, I'll, I'll throw it back to Mike. Cool. Thanks, Joel. Yeah, that was interesting um, about uh, Deleuze and um, speaking about um, his sort of ontological understanding of the past, present, future continuum being formless i think that's that's something um that's really interesting actually because I, I get a and i'm not i don't pretend to be like that familiar with deleuze other than like some of the very very basics of his thought but i got a a, a bit of an anti-determinist uh bent to it right like i think that we can sort of bring in um there's room for something like a metaphysical libertarianism and you know that should obviously not be um misconstrued as being like anything to do with political libertarianism you know, we could call it some something like a sort of voluntarism in a way, um, perhaps theological. And I think that like this metaphysical libertarianism, the idea that we or at least something 
is uh, absolutely free is actually not entirely out of keeping with our archaic identity as Indo-Europeans because um, while it's true that you know the engine of like classical tragedy and the tragedy that you see in like the Germanic sagas and things like that, um, the engine of that is fate. Um, I do think that there are um, there are exceptions to that and important exceptions to that in the uh, canon and the Western canon of uh, Indo-European, especially epic and legend. Um, but this libertarianism. Um, that I think that we're sort of picking up on here, it sort of brings in the notion of will and, you know, what will is that? Is it, you know, the will of a God or God? Is it the will of man? Like, are we all metaphysically free? free? That's obviously up for interpretation, but to uh, kind of bring it back a little bit um, towards, you know, what we're talking about in terms of like political authority, authority is something that is given uh, by a will outside of the social order. And I think that this is uh, a thread that kind of runs through, you know, Maestra and Filmer. Um, and, you know, it's key to throne and altar in general as a, as a concept. And I think that, you know, that ties in a little bit with what you were talking about with GA, uh, the sort of like mini critique of GA there. Um, <clears throat> one of the interesting things about GA that I noticed right away when I, um, you know, learned what it was and sort of, looked into it a bit was that it reminds me a lot of what Confucius is trying to do with language. So there's the idea of the rectification of names uh, in Confucian thought. And um, this is obviously a formalization of language in order to sort of set things to rights where, you know, it, what he says is that um, the first thing that needs to be set in order in the kingdom is um, the the meaning of names, right? And I see GA as doing something similar with grammar in a way. It's sort of like a, a historical or prehistorical project to rectify grammar. Uh, it's a kind of formalization uh, in a way. And I'm very sympathetic to formalism and formalization, but I think ultimately critiques of formalism are very similar to critiques of rule of law. Um, you know, rule of law being uh, something that is trying to do away with will in the political realm. So as far as uh, rule of law is concerned uh, and critiques of that, I would just refer the listener, I hate to do this, but you know, I don't want to sort of retread ground necessarily. We talked a little bit about this. I spoke on the last, the first uh, Imperium cast about this, uh, Imperium cast one, about uh, critiques of rule of law i would just basically sort of offer this as a sort of summary of it it's a, a direct quote from filmer where he says it's not the law that's the minister of god or that carries the sword but the ruler or magistrate so they that say that the law governs the kingdom may as well say that the carpenter's rule builds the house and not the carpenter for the law is but the rule or instrument of the ruler and I mean, I think that really sums it up, right? Like, you know, law is not something that has will. It's not something that can't that um, you know can exercise itself. Uh, so I think this ties in well with what you're saying about you know the idea that the law can't interpret itself. Um, and Filmer himself, he offers something much more interesting in place of uh, rule of law and popular sovereignty. So I think um, you know it's good to. That, that it, it'd be good to sort of jump into Patriarcha here and just talk a little bit about what he's up to. So there's a kind of unspoken rule among uh, people, especially in 
neo-reactionary circles that like Catholicism is like totally based and Protestantism is totally cringe. And, you know, you kind of get what they're saying in a way, especially since the original idea of Protestantism was to return to the primitive church, which is to, which is to say really to sort of strip the church of like the part of it that it's, it's European. Um, but at the same time, you do find some incredibly based Protestants like Carlisle being one that I spoke about earlier and Filmer being another. So, um, you know, there's obviously something going on there and Patriarcha, I would say Patriarcha is a must read for any Catholic who wants to grapple with some of the issues that arise in Catholicism. Like, you know, I think if we're being honest that there are some like the tendency for the Pope to be at odds with the sovereign, uh, natural freedom, which is something that comes in, uh, in medieval Catholicism. Uh, and this is not to say that like Catholicism is totally wrong or whatever. It's only that Protestantism has important sort of critiques that I think need to be grappled with. So Filmer starts out with a critique uh, of the natural freedom of man. And um, he points out that this idea actually arose in medieval Cath uh, Catholic universities. Um, and he sort of falls back on the Old Testament, um, which is what he uses for most of his examples, reminding us that it was the it was the desire for freedom that corrupted Adam. And Patriarcha is basically a rebuttal of these uh, mainly two Catholic, uh, two like Catholic thinkers, uh, Suarez and Bellarmine. And these guys are basically saying that like, look, the natural freedom of mankind is just what entails popular sovereignty. And uh, also that this popular sovereignty, you know, uh, which they uh, take as a given, entitles the people to depose kings at will. Um, so in other words, I mean, these particular Catholics maintain a divine right theory, uh, just not divine right of kings. It's the divine right of the people. So this is most people find this really interesting when they when they discover this, because, you know, as it turns out, divine right of kings is not a very old theory you know, boneheaded sort of like people who like love democracy and like, you know, uh, hate fascists and stuff like that. You know, they tend to think that, you know, divine right of kings theory was pretty much just like the default from, you know, the lower paleolithic to the day before yesterday. But the thing is, divine right of kings is um, not that old. It only arose in response to this idea of the people as bearers of defined uh, sanctions. So, uh What's Filmer's up to here in, in Patriarcha is basically to rebut this natural freedom of mankind. And, you know, a fortiori, if, if that goes, then popular sovereignty goes as well. So it's a rebuttal of that too. And th what he's mainly doing is he does this by advancing like a patriarchal theory of political authority. Um, that is to say the sovereign, the authority of the sovereign is the same authority as what's called Patria potestas, which is a Latin term. Basically, this is the absolute father, absolute power that a father enjoys by right in his own household. Um, and I, I think I mentioned it earlier, but it's something that has been around for a long time up until like, you know, the day before yesterday. So it's kind of I think it's worth unpacking the concept of Patria potestas because this is his model and his basis for kingship and sovereignty. So. Uh, Patria Potestas, it's an archaic Indo-European concept. We find it everywhere from Rome to India to the Celtic tribes to everywhere in the Indo-European uh, world. 
And the original idea was that the father is actually the high priest of the family and institutes, you know, the worship of the paternal line of ancestors. I may, I may mention something a little bit more later about um, what Indo-European theology, what the basis of it is, but it's basically ancestor worship. And what follows from it is that uh, the father, on the one hand, is also the supreme ma magistrate. Uh, he has what is called Yusnekis Akwitai, which is the power of life and death over his wife and children, basically an absolute power. Uh, and in this, under this sort of um, arrangement, the wife is essentially like a child, right? Uh, so the father is the supreme magistrate, but he's also the holder of all the property. Uh, I mean, technically, he's a steward. The ancestors actually own it, and he just holds it in fee to them. But he has complete freedom to dispose of all alien, alienable property uh, belonging to the family at, at his will. So no member of the family can own anything. Um, and so basically what this means is that the father in this uh, archaic household is a little monarch, a little absolute monarch. So what Filmer does is he kind of strips it of this sort of originary, like, you know, Aryan theological dimension, but he retains the other elements, um, namely uh, supreme jurisprudence and supreme ownership. So what he does, Filmer points out the incoherence of Bellarmine, um, saying that Bellarmine doesn't even agree with Bellarmine on this point. And then he goes on to, you know, cite examples, again, from the Old Testament. He cites Judah, pronouncing death on his daughter-in-law. Um, he says, I think, I think this is from the Bible, he says, bring her forth that she may be burnt, which is pretty badass. Um, and his point, though, is that patria potestas is not something innate in all men. Uh, but it's something that's actually just bequeathed to certain men as fathers. So that is to say, to certain men by primogeniture. Uh, but the important point here, the real takeaway here, is that this fatherly power is something handed down. It doesn't just come from nowhere. Uh, it exists as an unbroken succession. And importantly, um, importantly for Filmer anyway, it, it exists whether the, the succession has been obscured by time or not. Um, and of course, for him, the legitimate succession, which is, you know, the legitimate sovereignty, when traced all the way back, sort of terminates in Adam. Um, there are issues with his account on this point, like he sees the Jewish sojourn in Egypt as a kind of like caesura in this succession, which is a bit weird because, you know, is Israel really sovereign over Egypt? But the broader point still stands. Um, sovereignty is is something not conferred by the subject any more than paternal authority is conferred by the child. Uh, sovereignty is something conferred by the father on one of his own sons, uh, just as it's conferred by you know the legitimate king on his royal heir. Um, of course, you know kings aren't like you know exactly natural fathers of their people. They don't like they're not the literal father, but the principle is the same. The supreme ruler always rules by patria potestas, and this is a natural right, or in this case, it's a, it's a right that comes straight from the Decalogue, right? Honor thy father. And uh, the duties of the father and the king are one and the same. Maintain the charge, maintain his own charge, and dispense rights and privileges to his children or to his subjects. 
Um, and this is something that obviously, you know, it's very paternalistic, right? Like this is the kind of thing that would be leveled as a critique today that's paternalistic. But really, I mean, this is the way that all authority actually works. Um, so I think that's uh, it, it's, it's a very useful critique for us to, to sort of attack liberalism on this front. Um, and I'm just going to hand it over to Joel and get your thoughts on this point. What also is interesting about Filmer, as well as his kind of tracing of the father back to Adam, obviously, being, you know, being that he is a Christian. Um, and, you know, it comes from this notion that ultimately paternity is fundamentally given by God um, in like naturally in, 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 in a certain sense. Um, we were, if we're all descendants of Adam and Adam was made by God, then um, ultimately, you know, we are in this kind of you know, chain of paternity that like heads back to God as kind of like a father to Adam in the most primordial sense. And so ultimately all paternal authority is divine authority, according to Filmer. And I think this is a powerful, interesting idea. Actually, I was talking to this uh, Protestant chick the other day uh, about Catholicism and she was like, I'm not too sure about the whole like, uh, you know, banning of the pullout game. She's like, I don't know if I want to have eight kids or whatever. Um, and it was kind of funny, but um, the point that I made in defense of Catholicism was, well, I mean, if you have faith in God, I mean, who are you to decide how many children you have? I mean, ultimately, if you marry someone and, you know, they slip one through, I mean, it's up to God really, isn't it? Like it's, it's your decision or your discretion is totally irrelevant because ultimately man is not created by his mother or even by his father, but ultimately by um, God, according to Christian teachings. Right. So you should basically accept uh, whatever happens and just be thankful for it. Because, you know, as I, I, was, I was reading as uh, Pope John Paul II pointed out, you know, children aren't just there to bless their parents, although, of course, they do, but they're there to bless society. And so, um, you know, the parents' desires for how many children they want is, in, in every sense, kind of irrelevant to, like, the virtue of children themselves as, like, uh, functional, upstanding members of society or what have you. Um, and I guess this is kind of a great example, perhaps, of the shifted mentality from um, a quote-unquote traditionalist Christian mentality, one that's centered around divine authority to this liberal mentality, even though this, this girl was a Protestant um, and was at least sympathetic to my arguments somewhat because of this, um, where, you know, the liberal mentality was we have to have some kind of plan, some kind of strategy that we construct based upon our own reasoning and our own wisdom, uh, as opposed to accepting some kind of divine wisdom. Um and uh, so this kind of relation of, of there being like kind of like an always already divine uh, will that's kind of acting in our lives, acting in the world that's already up to something. And that our response to that is either to kind of deny it or to affirm it is like radically different to this um, kind of secularized, rational, liberal mentality in which nothing is justified. We're skeptical of everything and everything must be substantiated through some kind of rational argumentation before we accept it. Um, you, you begin with negation, you begin with nothing, and then everything must be composed ultimately out of this critical method. Um, and so in trying to kind of embrace, you know, as I said before, like reasons why I started to embrace Christianity, trying to embrace this like shift uh, from uh, 
this kind of secularized rational mentality to i guess ultimately a christian attitude um but even just fundamentally a faithful attitude even prior to like loading it with christianity um i kind of came to the kind of realization well ultimately who am i to deny uh you know, if I can just walk on off the street and like into a church this weekend on Sunday, like who am I ultimately to deny this and deny these commandments? Like on what basis do I have to say, no, I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not going to embrace Christianity. I'm just going to do my own thing. Um, because to me, the liberal mentality takes this as a default setting. Uh, and then Christianity has to substantiate itself. But like ultimately, if faith and the divine are ultimately where I got to through this process of kind of applying rationality to itself. The question I have to ask is, well, how does the divine present itself as something to be affirmed in my life? Um, and so if I deny the Christian tradition, well, then I can only deny it on the basis of affirming some alternative means of achieving this. Um, and I don't want to go into this necessarily in this, in this conversation, but whether that's really accessible, um, I find to be highly questionable, some kind of non-Christian means of, of, of achieving this. Um, but particularly if you think back in the day of Filma or the day of De Maestro, I mean, this wasn't a question. I mean, they lived in Christendom. Uh, either you affirm divine authority or you deny it explicitly. There, uh, through it, Within Christianity, there is no like alternative system or alternative religion that, you know, maybe I want to be a Muslim or a Buddhist or something. I mean, this was unthinkable in um, that period. And this, I think, also relates to what we're discussing in Imperium Cars 1 about the nation, um, uh, you know, being not, not so much a thing, not, not, not state, uh, but an, like, kind of like an idea. And this, is, this relates to like De Maestra, um, you know, you referenced De Maestra, and I, I know you're going to go into it uh, when I throw it back to you, Mike. But De Maestra's idea that the Constitution, you know, as you said, um, like to write it down is ultimately like um, to kind of subtract from it. Because the Constitution is presupposed in its ideal form before any act of writing it. The Constitution of France, he says, is written on the hearts of Frenchmen. It's not the actual French Constitution, or um, you know. And his point in saying this, I mean, he, he's a Catholic. He was saying this about the Bible as well. That, that you know, the Church having to write uh, its doctrines down in Scripture, it was only because it was compelled to by heretics and critics. Um, but that ultimately, Christ, when he came to Earth, he didn't. Uh, write a book. He uh, founded a church. He found he 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 kind of uh, gained apostles. He taught apostles and gave and created a living, breathing tradition that was passed down from man to man, uh, and I guess you know woman to woman and so forth, like through genuine participation and communal uh, immersion, and to kind of try and receive it purely through scripture. He's kind of criticizing, you know, you said Protestants are based in many ways, and I would agree, but maybe in this way, I would maybe side more with De Maestra, this idea that um, you can't really access Christianity or anything for that matter just by reading about it. Um, you actually have to find a way to kind of participate in it. Um, and, you know, uh, this kind of relates to my struggles. Like last week, we kind of spoke about Anglo-Saxon paganism, and this is something that I perceive as cool and interesting and that I want to really kind of understand my ancestral traditions um, you know, of my people, right, as an Anglo-Saxon. But at the same time, it feels so inaccessible because it does, it's not a living tradition. We can in, access it through indirect means by, like, written words and what people could say about it or describe about it and try and reconstruct it. But there's a kind of inauthenticity um, that I feel in kind of trying to embrace something like this. Um, and 
so this is tied, I think, to okay, what would what would it mean to have a kind of faithful post-liberal attitude? Um, would be ultimately to kind of uh, what it would mean to become faithful to authority to kind of rather than trying to shoehorn it into a justification, into a rationalization, instead to find where's authority in the world in which I can participate in communing with it and participate ultimately with communing with divinity. Uh, and so to me, this is why I think the church is kind of this necessary institution, why the priesthood ultimately is this necessary institution in society that we can't really do without. Um, and, you know, this kind of project of, of kind of sociological modeling, like, you know, you get a lot of this on the dissident right, where you'll have people that will say, you know, oh, well, I don't really believe in Christianity literally, but, you know, I see it as having this good sociological function. It's it's good for society. If people believe in Christianity, they act more morally, and that means that we have a stronger society or something. And, like, obviously this is true in, in a sense. Like, obviously there are pragmatic arguments, but, like, ultimately you've already exteriorized yourself from it from actually even understanding what it is by kind of thinking about it in this way. You're kind of modeling it from a position of exteriority as this sociological phenomenon, as though, as though you aren't bound up within it. And you're placing yourself kind of outside of society, um, outside of immersion, outside of participation. And so this attitude, um, it's no wonder that it kind of leads to this kind of nihilistic um, uh, moral degeneration and like degeneration of community and society that we see in you know modernity because it is kind of predicated on this exteriorizing logic that's ultimately based in my view in a denial of divine authority because if authority is really divine it's not up to us to kind of apply an abstract model to it and like determine what it is based upon our own wisdom and understanding uh but you know as, as the bible teaches god works in mysterious ways and we can't really second guess the divine will or we're in no position to question it. We're in no position to um, kind of analyze it from a position of exteriority. Our, our role is, is kind of, you know, faithful obedience. Um, so, yeah, I think this also relates, I guess, to another idea that I want to bring up before I throw it back to Mike, which is that I see ultimately liberalism as engendering paranoia. Because ultimately, if everything is subject to this kind of strategic, critical, rationalist modeling, then everyone is. Everyone, your your encounters with other people and your encounters even with yourself is ultimately one of this exteriority where you're kind of autistically modeling people as this complex of, um, you know, uh, object components enter into some kind of like structural relation and everything that they do and even yourself to yourself appears as this kind of structurally determined uh, process um, that is predicated on a bunch of presuppositions you take into its into its description um, and so which are this exteriorization and this denial and so forth that I was describing and so once you enter into this mentality ultimately you become paranoid of the other because the other ultimately feels exterior to yourself um, you're constantly kind of searching for ways to model what they're going to do and predict their behavior. You don't feel a sense of there being some kind of shared divinity or shared authority with which you can genuinely commune with the other person um, and share in providence with that other person. And so with this denial of providence, ultimately it's, it makes sense to me that we live in a society that is you know, as a, on, on the basis of its, of its kind of critical skepticism where you have this kind of sociopathic elite that is so um, uh, 
basically abusive toward the general population and you have such like hostility between different ideological camps in society and ultimately this like sense of alienation uh, and like this so-called mistrust of the system, um, this kind of general kind of uh, cynicism about power and authority and the capacity of anyone to wield power successfully. Uh, this ultimately is all grounded in this kind of liberal paranoia, which I think defines increasingly our society. And all that you can do in response to it is kind of erect defenses. And society is increasingly about, uh, it's kind of predicated on survival. It's predicated on defensive posture of negating the other, of criticizing the other, of attacking proactively the other and, de and defending ourselves against these fantasy projections of what could go wrong, these people that could rise up against us in various ways or persecute us. Um, and, and because it's this total alienation from divine providence that I see is the cause of this. There is this belief that essentially no one is in control. We're totally out here on our own, uh, on our own strength. We can't trust anyone. And so this engenders a kind of like a, in a self-fulfilling prophecy, a kind of vicious circle that is ultimately, I think, incredibly destructive. And it's just what we're all subject to. Um, the alternative that I see is like looking back in history, not that we could just copy and paste this, but just as an example of something different is instead a kind of virtuous circle, which is the relation uh, between the church and the state in which the state understands itself as appointed by, by God and ultimately um, gaining its legitimacy from its relation to the church and to Christianity itself. And so it wants to kind of empower the church, empower Christianity and empower this, the continuity of this moral framework and this tradition in order to maintain its own justification, which means it supports the church, it supports all these other institutions in pursuing the kind of maintenance of the religion and communion with the divine uh, and conferring authority upon the leader who confer, like basically, um, you know, supports them in this kind of, it's kind of like virtuous, harmonious coherence. Um, and this is what we've lost. And so it seems to me that the goal would be to get back to something like this. It wouldn't look exactly the same, um, but into a position where there was some kind of spiritual authority in our society that could kind of speak on the moral issues of the day and kind of intermediate between divinity and society in such a way as to legitimate some kind of political authority on this basis. Um, and this seems like radical. It seems so far away from where we're at, but I don't really see a method uh, other than something roughly like this as a solution to this kind of state of paranoia and, you know, recursive critique that we find ourselves in. But, uh, you know, this seems, yeah, I kind of, this seems like quite similar to many ideas, maybe in De Maestro, though, with maybe uh, kind of it was kind of like almost a prophet of the direction that we're going in with this. But uh, I'll throw it back to you, Mike. Yeah, man. I mean, Maestro is he is uh, if you are just coming into um, post-liberalism or sort of like moving outside of liberalism. I mean, he's not the easiest, but he's definitely like one of the big guys. You got to at least work yourself, work your way up to. Um, he is one of the, the, the real heavy hitters. Um, and I think that the sort of liberal paranoia regarding power and authority that you, you were talking about, um, that is definitely, I think, I think you've characterized it very well, um, that that is exactly what's happening and that's grounded ultimately in the lack of legitimacy because, you know, power isn't like, you know, it doesn't have any sort of like 
final legitimacy to it uh, outside of itself. And it, and it's certainly not something that has any like moral implications uh, the same way that a divine order does. So we, I'm not going to say we have to, but I would, we almost certainly have to ground something outside of just pure power. Right. Like, um, and I thought it was interesting that anecdote about the, um, that Protestant friend of yours that was talking about like not wanting to have eight children and like how many children she wants to be the one to decide. And, um, the idea that if you really are faithful and you trust in, you know, the divine will and God, that it's God's decision, <laughs> right? And this is so alien to our mentality today. Like everything has to be submitted to util utilitarian, like practical reason. Um, and this just kind of leads us into the, into the cul-de-sac of um, the liberal paranoia that, that you've mentioned um and yeah definitely like the the idea of like sola scriptura um that comes out of protestantism is it it leads us into its own sort of cul-de-sac like it's it's very very hard to access the tradition or like anything real or that is divinely grounded just by reading about it right we have to ground ourselves in a history a historicity um and yeah, you, you mentioned about like Christianity as a viable option. I mean, it is a viable option, certainly viable. Um, but I would, I would say without going in any depth that like Germanic paganism is a living tradition as well. And the vessel through which it's been transmitted is actually pre-Vatican II Christianity. Uh, I realize this is going to be uh, controversial. So I'll just kind of <laughs> lob it in there and then back away but um this is like a it, super interesting podcast for maybe like imperium cast six or something we'll, yeah we'll have to come we back to this <laughs> yeah we we definitely uh will have to um i i i'd say it's impossible to have christianity without this um sort of underlying germanicized uh christianity and that christianity that people consider worth having has this uh streak in it but anyway that's not the point i don't want to get into it too far um we do have to ground ourselves in a history, and history is ultimately the work of circumstances, which is the phrase that Meister uses in uh, Generative Principle, this uh, book that we were talking about. That is to say, we're here for a reason, things happen for a reason, and you know, even liberals kind of understand this. They can kind of get on board with it. Like, you know, um, for them, history has an arc. Uh, and although theirs is kind of like a special case of something like more general, um, and I think it's more profound, I think that they kind of could understand it. So I think this is a good time to bring in Maestra, the generative principle. I'll kind of go into it a little bit in more depth than I did at the start. So basically what he does at the very beginning of this text is he starts out with an endorsement of um, I kind of characterize it as empiricism, but I think, Joel, you pointed out before we started that it's maybe better characterized as historicism, which is to say that anything of any social import like whatsoever, um, anything that bears on the society that's an important question, you can't decide these sort of things with disembodied reason. You actually have to look, right? And he gives the, uh, he gives the example of hereditary monarchy. Um, which is just, I mean, it, he, he even admits, like, hereditary monarchy is the dumbest crap that you could ever come up with, right? And and then he goes on to say, and yet it 
works. <laughs> Miraculously, somehow, it just it, it turns out that this is the way that social orders become stable, and this is the way that they actually work. Uh, and another phrase that I think um, sort of comes into this work of circumstances, he says, history is experimental politics. And I think that this is something we really need to take on board as historicists. So, I mean, he's basically an, uh, an empiricist or, or a historicist, and he's much closer to like a radical empiricism than like anything I'd say Locke or Hume come out with. Um, and what he means by history being experimental politics is that the only way that you can determine if a thing is going to work is just by looking at how it actually works in experience. Um, and this is quite at odds with actually most modern institutions that have inherited the idea that like a thing has to be rational in order to work. But of course it doesn't. If you look through, you know, the, um, you know, if you look through the fossil records, so to speak, I mean, in a lot of cases, believing what's rational is actually like terrible for us, and believing what's irrational, like quote irrational, uh, is is good for us. And in this way, he Meister kind of comports himself. He's one of the great irrationalists, and he kind of comports himself like as an unlikely bedfellow in some ways with like Nietzsche's um, epistemology um, on, in that one work that was unpublished. That I forget the name of right now. Um, so even if like hereditary monarchy or augury or like casting lots or whatever to make political decisions, if any of this might seem like completely brain dead, well, the problem is that you've got the whole of history to explain away. So this is kind of how he sets up his critique of political constitutions. And the critique he's leveling is basically like a radically anti-theoretical, anti-rationalist one. Um, and it also applies – it's not just a critique of constitutions. It, it's a critique of rulership in general. So we as like post-liberals or illiberals or whatever we want, we want to call ourselves, we can come up with like any number of rational explanations for like why kingship has to be divine or like why constitutions um, must be unwritten. But like ultimately, these – uh, explanations or arguments, they take a backseat to the irrationalist undercurrent that runs through the book. Um, and the thing is, like, in the end, these things just work. And to analyze them beyond the purely um, historical, which is just to say the, the non-theoretical, which is just to say, according to providence, the divine will, in the end, like, to analyze them beyond these things is a mistake. Uh, divine will is something beyond our ken. Uh, divine wrath is um, mysterious. And this is the bottom line. And like much of the great religious literature, you know, for example, the book of Job is basically reconciling us to accept this fact. So, and the fact is that like human agency does not drive history, which is kind of a weird concept for us. It's very alien right now because um, one of the ideas that sort of gained currency in the recent past is that uh, the, the notion that human agency is decisive in historical developments. It's not strictly speaking liberal because, you know, there are alternatives like, you know, um, that material conditions determine everything. But like more often than not, like human agency is the instrument of what we might take to be sort of like, well, providence or divine law, or the will of the gods, or whatever you want to call it. Um, and quite often, human agency actually, uh, it often it enacts the opposite of what it intends. Um, and it's weird, because this is kind of like opposed to great man theory of history, which is uh, very much 
what we consider illiberal now. Um, and it's not the same as the material conditions like non-explanation that we get from like Marxism. Uh, but the idea is that the great man is a tool of the deity, but he's still a great man. Uh, Maitre says he, – he sum, summarizes this by saying, in a sense, it's as though the trowel believes itself to be the architect. And this is cool because it's like an echo of Filmer's analogy with the hammer, right? Sovereignty is outside the sphere of human power. Um, and you know, to bring it back to what we're talking about with legitimacy, Maestro says uh, that this is stamped by what he calls God's prime minister, which is time. In other words, a thing is like it's justified or legitimated to the degree that it's old, which is, I mean, <laughs> this is not exactly a popular position these days. But he's pretty much actually giving you the Lindy effect, like 200 years ahead of schedule. Um, so, like. Again, as for legitimacy of, say, institutions, uh, Maestra, he's kind of like a particularist. Um, he, he sort of says us that language is something learned and not invented. Um, but this is to, just to say that language has a divine origin. So this actually comes into um, conjunction, I think, with GA in, in, a, in an interesting way. And there is a GA reading of Maestra, I think, that's available. Um, but human agency doesn't create language. And it's the same thing with institutions, like even nations. Um, man can't create these institutions. He can't even borrow them from abroad, as Maestro says. I mean, obviously he makes an exception for religions, but religion's a bit unique. It's sort of like the source of other institutions. Um, but for Maestro, no institution is even real or like can last at all without a religious basis. And he, he echoes this sort of quasi particularism by saying that the institution has to bear a name taken from the native language. So you can't just like transplant, you know, the Olympic games from Greece. This is his example that he gives. Uh, you can't just transplant the Confucian system of like rights and civil service or like take a constitution and slap it like from one people, one people to another. Um, all these things, at the very least, they have to be renamed in the native tongue um, and will almost certainly fail unless sanctioned by time. Again, God's prime minister, as he says, which is just to say that they need a, they should have a prehistorical origin above a historical one. So, I mean, where does all this stuff like that we've been talking about here, what is, where does it leave human agency? Unfortunately, it's there doesn't play a very decisive role. Um, and since the institution of kingship is, um, it's right at the top, second only to religion itself, perhaps. It's trying to. It's hard to imagine. Again, coming back to like power, which is what you started out talking about. It's hard to imagine how power can be the basis for any legitimacy uh, when we're, we're talking about human agency as not driving history. So I think Meister is very, very useful to us here. And although it's it's somewhat controversial, the idea that um, you know great men don't actually you know they're not the agents uh, that are driving things, I think it's it's something that is it could potentially be very useful for us. Yeah, this is why I raised Deleuze's theory of time, and I guess a kind of a novel reading that I have, but ultimately I view it as ult as uh, that divine providence is built into the very structure of time. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm obviously taking a little bit of liberty with this, but I do believe it is consistent with this notion 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to sum up, I, I really enjoyed the Maestro. I think he's brilliant. I'm keen to read a lot more of his work. Um, he's very enjoyable to read. Uh, and Filmer too, they're both great texts and I, you know, echo your endorsement of them to everyone listening. Maestro's um, a great stylist too, which is like one of the things I love about him. Yeah, yeah, he's brilliant. He's like really quotable, like, um, like he, it's almost like he's just creating like hot takes, like Twitter hot takes, like one after the other, like he, 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 he has, you know, keen turns of phrase and so forth. There's a um, bit of a Chestertonian kind of vibe in some ways. Yeah, I guess you could say that, but yeah, I mean, what, what I like about them is that they give you a kind of way, uh, like a, a window into the attitude of the pre-liberal world. And I think this is kind of really the point that I kind of keep coming back to perhaps. And I, I guess um, if you read my paper on firstness.org situations and territories, the first issue, I draw this distinction between dramatization and rationalization. And I kind of spend a first portion of the paper kind of critiquing rationalization for reasons I gave earlier, rationalization being ultimately nihilistic recursive paradoxical and so forth and i kind of um throw some throw some swings at plato um and socrates in particular in that text plato i have a lot more time for um but uh ultimately what this comes down to for me and again you know uh, i guess there's a little bit of heideggerian influence on this idea is that the problem ultimately isn't having the wrong ideas but having the wrong attitude and that attitude as a kind of existential condition it's kind of prior to um, any like particular notions or concepts that we develop. It's not about thinking the right things or thinking the wrong things. That's the problem here. But like our attitude fundamentally that we have toward knowledge and toward authority and toward ourselves and toward being, that is the real problem and the source of all of these metaphysical and political issues that are kind of uh, consequences or, or symptoms of this more fundamental spiritual uh, complication and so the question really is for me how we can change our attitude to receive divine providence and obey divine authority this to me seems to be the basis of all praxis if we can't figure out this question and if we can't sincerely not just rationalize it like i've given some reasons you know perhaps paradoxically as to why um i like this or that but i mean what's more important is is, is, is the performance. And I guess this is what appeals to me about faith in a Christian context um, is the performative aspect, like actually embracing the act of going to mass on the Sunday and being part of the community and like taking the communion and doing the confession and, and acting out, you know, a new way of life where you try and bring your whole thought process, attitude, and lifestyle into conformity with divine authority and kind of model that to others and then let that thinking kind of uh, consume you and take over your attitude toward your other pursuits. And I'm interested to see what taking on this attitude and like rolling the dice with faith and seeing where this attitude takes me, how it impacts um, you know, my political theorizing as this process at the same time, because, you know, as I was kind of kind of critiquing almost the attitude of the standard political theorist as being kind of, you know, as I said before, this source of paranoia, this, this ultimately this uh, source of rebellion or kind of constituted as rebellion and denial. 
Um, um, so yeah, I I think um, the question as well is 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 one of sharing. So not just in the individual, like you have to kind of get your own personal affairs in order, but also also what can we share as a people? We discussed this last week a little bit as well. Like how can we share divine authority? And this, I mean, I think relates as well to like the problems with Protestantism, this kind of endless schisming of the church. But I mean, you can trace this back, I think, to internal processes in Catholicism. And, um, uh, you know, it's a very complex political question, which we don't have to go into in this, in this podcast, maybe a, another one we can kind of delve into it more deeply. But this idea that we need to have some kind of coherent body, some kind of coherent church, which can develop uh, a kind of spiritual authority for our nation, for our people, as opposed to just for us as individuals. Um, and I don't think this can really be divided from the political. I don't, it don't, I don't think it really matters who the president is or, you know, um, you know, who is in certain positions of power. If we don't have um, some kind of continuous spiritual unity that's that's institutionalized in some form in our society that can kind of articulate providence to these individuals you can have a really good president or a, a really good individual perhaps that uh, but lacking this the people in the society will not be able to obey them and serve them correctly because their attitude will be fundamentally wrong if you have a society where everyone has a liberal attitude you can have the most virtuous king possible and he won't be able to actually achieve anything um because his virtue will be squandered by the rebellion, denial, insolence, questioning, and so forth. I mean, if we had a truly based and red-pilled TM, you know, president come to power, like what Trump was supposed to be instead of what he actually was, for example, I mean, he wouldn't be allowed to rule because of the fundamental attitude of our society. Um, and so to me, it seems like changing this attitude is more important than anything else. You can have really good policy proposals about how to run the economic system differently or like really good political scientific analysis about how to like seize power and command institutions and like generate income uh, and like direct that income to political operatives and develop this like, you know, all that stuff is great and necessary. Um, But ultimately without this attitude change, um, to me, as I said earlier, I just fear that it's just like making the technocracy more efficient making the industrial system more effective you know we can have better spaceships or um you know we can have like like you know we can develop biotechnology faster and uh, we, we could develop robotics faster or something but to what end like if we don't have ultimately a sense of divine authority guiding this process and it's all just based on this paranoia and skepticism and antagonism um i don't see uh, this techno-industrial capacity being deployed towards good ends. I see it as being a, a kind of disaster waiting to happen that we don't have the tools to deal with. In fact, I would view society today in 2021 as a disaster that has happened in many ways. Um, so I guess like in conclusion, I guess my view on this is um, of theopoliticization that is a kind of indivisibility because of this kind of existential requirement that I kind of lay out. Um, And I don't really see a pathway forward politically unless this is really grappled with sincerely and authentically, not just saying we're Christian or saying we're whatever religion in order for propaganda purposes, because it's a good 
social technology for controlling the masses or something. This is a sociopathic attitude, but like that authentic performance, like authentic embrace, authentic faith is required as the basis of moral legitimacy. You know, for, to, to rule over other men, you must be the first uh, obeyer amongst many. You must uh, you know, teach others how to obey uh, by virtue of your strict obedience. Um, uh, I think this is ultimately the lesson you're going to bring up GA. This is something I think Adam Katz's system, you know, I think he gets right. It's this idea that firstness is being like the first to commune with the center, the first to hear the center's imperative and to translate it for the community. Um, analogous somewhat to like the hero's journey um, or particularly like the shamanic model of, you know, going and having a spiritual realization, communing with God out in the woods and then returning to the community with spiritual gold uh, in order to kind of, kind of uh, reset, immunize and reform the political order. This is, I think, the basis of, of uh, genuine, authentic authority. And yeah, anything else is just a reproduction of the very thing that um, is abusing us and, uh, uh, you know, producing all of these outcomes that I think we can agree if you're listening to this podcast, um, uh, entirely dissatisfactory, but I mean, I'll throw it back to you, Mike, for the final word. Cool. Yeah. Um, I think that's a good way to sort of, um, bring the discussion to a close here, uh, because, you know, that is what that, you know, we, we have to stop trying sort of, sort of being, um, too humble, I suppose. What you said about the hero's journey uh, and going out there and and looking for and and finding and bringing back the spiritual gold—that is the project. That is the project of post-liberalism. You know, we are embarking on this journey, and uh, maybe it might be us, maybe it'll be somebody else, but it will happen and that i think that the spiritual gold that we're seeking for is the attitude change that you mentioned uh particularly an a change in attitude towards authority um you know attitude attitude or orientation to a world counts for far far more than understanding of that world because attitude um you know it come it, it actually orients you towards the uh, tools that you have to gain that understanding. And, but even attitude itself is secondary to action. Uh, the action precedes the orientation, which is just to say in very simple terms, and this is something that I mentioned on one of these mini iCasts on my Telegram page, so you have to go check that out. There's a plug for you. <laughs> um, I, I mentioned on one of these mini iCasts uh, about Pascal, and what what he goes into sort of at the end of his very famous passage on uh, Pascal's wager, the the end bit is more interesting to me. Um, at, out of this wager, what comes is you know it's a, it's a pretty airtight argument for the belief in God, but the argument is not enough. Like you know nobody like argued anybody into like having a religious experience like nobody like reads a syllogism and then breaks into tears or anything right like it just doesn't work that way so but if you're convinced though how do you have that religious experience how do you bring it on well it's by something very prosaic as it turns out it's by habit and the habit 
is cultivated by repeated action. So how do you become a Christian if you know that it's the right thing and you know that it's the right so social technology, but you don't feel it in your gut? How do you become a Christian? Well, you get down on your knees and you pray, right? Um, you participate in the ritual. You take mass. You um, get involved in the in the uh, ritual praxis, which is why um, this is something that I'm probably going to – uh, do a video on at some stage once um, Imperium Press gets its uh, YouTube channel sort of up and running, which is that orthopraxy is one of the key components of any illiberal worldview, orthopraxy over orthodoxy. Attitude requires faith, and like faith is just preceded by action. Um, now, this is not to say that like you know there's no room for reason. Of course there is, but reason has to be subordinated to faith. Um, and as a first step towards kind of like subordinating reason to faith, um, I, I think sort of to prompt people to sort of to, to actually do that, to bend the knee and start praying, as Pascal says, I think we can actually offer a critique of reason as being secondary to faith. Um, it's ontologically prior. Uh, faith is ontologically prior to reason in uh, a few different ways. You could say that intuition is prior to reason. And this is something that um, has been understood since ancient times, but it's sort of only recently been rediscovered by analytic philosophy. Um, and by intuition, we just mean that some moral truths are known non-inferentially, like as a matter of instinct, for example. Um, and what this in interesting analytic philosopher named Michael Humer does, he's got a book called Eth Ethical Intuition, Ethical Intuitionism. And he marries the like obvious idea that we have intuitions with um, his. Uh, he's produced a, like an argument um, that basically argues that apprehending these intuitions is sufficient reason for us to act on them. So he produces a pretty airtight argument to convince us that apprehending a reason gives you warrant to act on that reason, which is like it sounds like so obvious to us, but this is like the sort of thing that's been like a minority position in academic philosophy for half a century so because um intuitionism seems to entail ethical conservatism and that's like well you just can't have that so anyway the takeaway from humor is that at the bottom of moral reasoning even of like the most disembodied or transcendent or abstract kind are just brute intuitions um and moral reasoning just like any other kind of reasoning, has to proceed from a starting point, like a set of premises just given as brute facts that aren't fully uh, or aren't like further analyzable. And I mean, we call these things axioms, right? Uh, the question is, how do we arrive at the axioms? Well, the answer is that they're just given, almost like by definition. But the question then is, what are they given by? And that's where intuition comes in. And this might be something like instinctual, or it might come from the culture. Uh, usually it's a combination of the two, um, but apart from you know like biology and culture, uh, the major well not apart from culture the major driving force uh, behind moral reasoning is usually tradition. So this is an argument that is made by Alastair MacIntyre, which we don't really have that much well we don't have any time to really go into it, but um, the epistemic role of tradition is uh, I think we can understand it in contrast to the Enlightenment, right? The Enlightenment says that axioms have to be immediately obvious to any rational agent. They have to furnish the basis of all further knowledge. 
which is just the individual abstracted from all context, all history, all tradition, right? Um, and under liberalism, this abstracted individual is himself like the highest epistemic authority. So um, he doesn't need anything other than his reason to, to, to deduce like from his axioms all like any moral principle. So in After Virtue, McIntyre basically says that stripping the agent of tradition sort of denies him any sense, like his evaluative concepts like good and bad or, you know, any, anything like that are just completely empty. Um, and so ethics is sort of devolved into just emotivism, basically like screaming preferences in each other's face. Um, and it's the inability of liberalism to sort of debate, bring debates on the nature of like these axioms to a conclusion that has transformed it into a political force. So ideas of liberty and openness and inclusion and all that other nonsense have to be accepted and they have to be accepted by hook or crook. And this has actually transformed liberalism into a tradition. So basically the idea is that tradition is inescapable and it furnishes us with our intuitions and there's just no way around that. Um, so if we accept that liberalism is another tradition um, and that reason as the basis for liberalism is itself dependent on tradition, then we're just basically left with straight up faith as being ontologically prior to reason. So I think, you know, uh, to bring this to a close and to sort of end on a note regarding faith, I think it's worth investigating a position that actually just accepts faith as prior to reason. And that's fideism. Fideism? I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but... These are people like Pascal and especially um, Pierre Bale and somewhat less so Kierkegaard. These people get a lot of flack for sort of ceding reason to the enemy, but it's a powerful line of thought. Um, the basic idea is that anything worth believing ultimately just isn't bounded by reason. So you could think of like you know the Christian Trinity or any number of like pagan cosmogonic myths. They just cannot be squared with reason. But you know what? So much the worse for reason, if that's so, because these things are the basis on which reason is constructed and justified. So it makes sense that reason can't circumscribe them. Um, so, which, what did I say? Bale, yeah. So Bale, for example, when he writes his famous article on King David, he goes through like this painfully detailed list of ways in which like David doesn't measure up as a moral agent. But none of that matters, right? Uh, because God has conferred his favor on David. And this is the a fortiori, right? Like God's favor is just a more secure basis for moral reasoning than our own intuitive notion of like what's right and wrong and all that. Um, it's even more secure than the internal consistency of like the moral system itself. So at the end of the day, the conclusion is just, again, much like in the book of Job, God's will is a mystery. And that's just something you're going to have to come to grips with. So, Again, you just got to humble yourself and understand that reason is secondary to other stronger and older things that bear a transcendental relation to reason. So, you know, there's a, a, a sort of like rational argument for why faith matters. And, you know, I think that's a good place to sort of leave it because at that stage, you've just got to do the thing. You've just got to bend the knee. And that's what's going to change your attitude. 